together we can create our new digital leader. Connection, engagement, confidence. Do we feel we are in a psychologically safe place? Language shouldn't be able to stop you from career progression. We are changing the, the future landscape of business, of leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Changemaker Conversations, brought to you by HealthTF Corporate Education. My name is Dr. Milena Kupez, and in this series, we aim to bring you insights and stories from leaders and leadership developers who create change and inspire others to do the same. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Changemaker Plamena Solakova. Plamena is the Global Inclusion Specialist at Ocado. It is hard not to know Ocado, but for those of you who are not familiar with Ocado, it is the world's largest online grocery retailer. Her role is to develop and implement Ocado's annual diversity and inclusion strategy and work with Ocado's employee networks day-to-day and advise departments from an inclusion lens on recruitment, learning, and development and communications. But without further ado, Plamena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Amazing. So let's start by hearing more from you in terms of who is Ocado. So Ocado as a business, um, really within the group of Ocado, there are three distinct entities. The first one is Ocado Retail, which is the online supermarket, Ocado.com. The second one is Ocado Logistics, um, which is basically all of our warehouse staff, all of our drivers who work tirelessly to bring food to people when they order. Um, And then the final um, part of the business is Ocado Technology, um, which is where all of our data scientists, product managers, all of our technology um, software developers work together to create innovative technology then that then gets to be used um, in our uh, warehouses. And ultimately, something that maybe not very many people know is when you order from Ocado.com, it's actually a robot that um, goes and picks out your food um, and packs it in your bags. And then it's a human being who takes the bags from the warehouse and brings them to your house. So really kind of bringing all of these distinct entities together there is a massive operation of people who are all working behind the scenes and frontline also to make that happen and to make our customers happy. Wow, that's an impressive company. And dare I say, one of my favorite companies out there. So ahead of the game. Uh, So I'm super excited to talk to you, but let's hear more about you. Um, What is your background and your role in this organization? So my role in Ocado is that I work as a global inclusion specialist and I work in the business entity for Ocado Technology. So as I explained earlier, with the three distinct businesses within it, I mostly focus with the um, technology-based workforce. Um, These are mostly individuals who tend to be office-based, majority of them, um, who are globally uh, spread across the globe. We have people in the UK, we have people in 10 other countries also. So it's quite a a wide range of different cultures working together, different demographic characteristics being represented. And ultimately, my role day to day is anything and everything to do with diversity and inclusion. Um, As you said in the intro, my main focus area is our strategy, which we have a strategy in place from a diversity and inclusion standpoint with a few priorities that have been identified as our focus areas this year. 
Um, so my main responsibility is working towards implementing those and achieving um, those uh, goals that we've put in place. I also work very closely with our employee networks. Um, there are 10 of them at Ocado and I support them in organizing different initiatives and events. Um, the networks that we have are around gender. So we have a women in technology network, for example, um, around sexual orientation. We have a pride network around religion. We have veterans, we have parents and carers. We have a quite a wide range of different demographic groups who are represented and who have taken the initiative to create their own network. So really my role is to support them um, and the, in the goals that they have established and also to align their activities and their goals to the overall diversity and inclusion strategy of the organization. And then finally, I work um, in, in, in a lot of my day-to-day -day work, I focus on demographic data, um, which is a big focus area for us to really understand our population better. And also I partner a lot with other departments such as talent development, um, talent acquisition, communications, internal and external also, and really advise from an inclusion standpoint on how we can make our processes, our policies and our practices more inclusive towards everyone. Thank you so much for giving me that picture of your role and uh, your journey. What I really like is that you spoke about collaborating closely with many departments. And I know that the reason why I wanted to speak with you in the first place is because when I first met you, uh, I was very impressed by this kind of global mindset and how you're bringing different facets of uh, uh, diversity and inclusion together with well-being. Uh, you know, we are on the Change Maker podcast, and I feel like that's a, a change that's happening a lot. We're no longer treating well-being and inclusion as two completely separate entities, but we're seeing that there cannot be well-being without inclusion, and there cannot be inclusion without well-being. So I'm very keen to hear more from you if this is uh, how it is working out within your team and uh, if you feel these two topics are treated in alignment and what changes you see there. Yes, absolutely. Um, so when I first joined the organization last year, I was um, employed in the diversity and inclusion team at the time, and there was a separate health and well-being team also. Um, later in the year, um, the business made the decision to restructure a little bit. And as part of that restructure, we actually decided to combine the two teams together so that it's going to be one global well-being and inclusion team. And the reasons to do that were twofold. On the one hand, the big picture strategic reasoning is that ultimately by combining our teams and, and the experts within those teams, when we are putting together our strategic priorities for the organization, we're going to be feeding into each other's thinking process and that we're going to come up with combined strategies and priorities for the business that consider both well-being and inclusion. The second reason is a little bit more, um, I guess, tactical in that we are fully aware that different groups within the business experience different challenges. So if you are um, a member of an underrepresented group of a, of a minority group of any kind, it is quite likely that you're going to experience the world in a different way than people who belong to the majority group in an organization or in society more generally. Um, that being said, the way that you 
um, experience challenges at work day to day may also mean you need different type of support and you, or you might need certain accommodations to be offered to you. Um, this applies then very much to how the way that you experience the world around you and your workplace then very much has an impact on your overall well-being, both during your working hours and outside of your working hours. So I guess the full realization that underrepresented groups in particular might need more tailored solutions that are considerate of their needs and um, that are applied specifically to them, um, then also means that hopefully by us implementing those tailored solutions from an inclusion standpoint, ultimately results in better well-being for those groups. And the same applies for members of the majority group also. At the end of the day, we're all working towards um, the common goal of being respectful to each other, of being fair to each other, of really treating each other, um, thinking that we're thriving at work and that we're being respected and that our, our opinions matter, that we're feeling safe to express our views and ultimately that those views are going to be taken into consideration. It's, it's really important, I think, to, to have both of those mindsets aligned into how can we be more inclusive and ultimately by being more inclusive how can we make our experience at work more enjoyable and ourselves feeling better day to day that's wonderful and it makes complete sense to me and i wonder if this is a change that we'll see across many other global organizations where inclusion and well-being are no longer treated separately but they will converge in one team Thank you so much for explaining me the reason behind that and how it's working out for Ocado. I know you also mentioned at the beginning where you were talking about your role, that you work with different employee networks and resource groups. Uh, these are hugely important. And then I was wondering in your role day to day, can you tell me a little bit more about the, their purpose and perhaps any recent example of initiatives you've led? Yes, absolutely. So the way that I, I see it is that an employee network or an employee resource group really has three main purposes to it. The first one is around connecting people and creating a safe space. Um, these tend to be people who share common characteristics, but also bringing in allies to their causes also. So really creating a forum where people can have honest conversations, learn from each other and support each other. The second purpose of an employee network that I would see is raising awareness. And this is more broadly and outside of the network itself, outside of the membership. It's really important to um, kind of express views and ideas and share learnings with the broader organization and really raise awareness about what matters to the members of that group and how others can be allies as well. Um, the third purpose that exists for employee networks really in my mind is around advocating and this is really around pushing forward ideas and recommendations from the employee network itself towards the relevant departments in an organization and that ultimately feeds into change and, and making positive improvements for the people experience of, of everybody so if i was to kind of give a few examples around these three different aspects of an employee network's purpose um, I would say a very recent example is our Muslim network at Ocado, who organized an event during Ramadan. Um, we had a, a whole day where non-Muslim colleagues were um, invited to fast alongside our Muslim colleagues. And then at the end of that day in the evening, we had an event um, in our headquarters where we had big dinner together, big iftar, 
and we kind of learned a little bit more around Ramadan, what, what it means, why people fast, what are some of the most commonly asked questions around it. We had an honest conversation and then ultimately we had a really good community feeling when we sat around the table and we had food together. So this example to me is around connecting people um, but also around raising awareness because for me as a non-Muslim person it was uh, really educational as an experience and it really made me relate a lot better and understand the fasting um, piece a lot better. So I, I was one of the people who fasted that whole day and genuinely appreciated the patience um, of, of my colleagues who explained things to me and also their um, willingness to have a conversation and their willingness to share a little bit more about their religion and their different cultures also. Another example I would, I would give is probably around the, the safe space and the connection aspect. I think in a lot of organizations um, in the aftermath of um, 2020 and the George Floyd murder, um, there was a lot of conversation about, around Black Lives Matter and the initiatives that different organizations are putting together. But ultimately, a really important aspect of that was also to allow employee networks who are driven by, for example, or organized for um, Black employees to come together and to have an honest conversation between themselves without necessarily the interference of representatives of the organization more broadly. So sometimes, I guess what I'm trying to say is that sometimes employee networks and, and their members just want to sit together and just honestly share their views in an, in an open way amongst each other in a safe space, knowing that they can be fully honest and they can really reflect individually and in a good form. And with, with that, it, it's a fundamental thing for me to have that psychological safety within the networks and for people to know that they can use the time and they can really connect with, with their colleagues. And then the final example I'll probably give um, is around advocating and driving internal initiatives. And again, this is quite a recent example in, in the Ocado context. Um, we have a Women in Technology um, ERG within Ocado who did some internal uh, surveys and some listening groups towards the end of last year. And they identified that members of that community really wanted to experience coaching um, and to kind of put together a coaching program where internal employees from Mocado would be acting as coaches and coaches, and they'll be connecting and supporting each other in order to advance their career and really meet their professional goals. The idea was that this is going to be an internal only initiative rather than connecting with coaches externally or using an executive coaching company, for example. And in supporting our coaches, we would also upskill them, right? We would train them what is coaching, what isn't coaching, how and what questions could they ask, how to form a relationship with their coachee, um, and ultimately how to help them meet their goals once they have been um, set out and at the end, how to close the coaching relationship. So, so this kind of upskilling is something that um, is really important to our people. They really wanted to become a part of a, at least a pilot pro program that focuses on it. And ultimately, of course, if you look at it on the other side, you've got the coachy perspective where they would be supported by a coach in um, establishing goals, both professional, but also in their personal lives, if, if that's their need and hopefully working towards meeting those goals in a practical way. So the women in technology community coming to, to our central team 
asking for support to make that happen was a fantastic example of an employee-led initiative, a grassroots movement that ultimately was, was approved. We, we got funding for it. We supported them in, in making that happen. And at the moment, we're already in that pilot phase of the project. So we are already training our coaches and they will soon start having their sessions with their coaches. Point being, ideas don't always need to come from the leaders. They, they can absolutely come from um, employees themselves. As long as it's the right environment and there is that support in place, any employee can really thrive in, in, in any organization. And employee networks is a critical way of making that happen. Thank you so much. I love these examples. I love them because they really show how these employee networks and research groups are not just there to provide support when needed, but you're really getting involved with them. I, I really appreciated a story about how you all got involved with the fasting and got to ask questions that you would normally feel uncomfortable asking and really kind of living the experience and sharing that in a genuine way. I often find that in organizations, these networks just kind of tend to be there for the people who need them, but don't get involved past that. So I think you're making an amazing use out of them. And I look forward to hearing about how this project with women in technology uh, turns out as well. In fact, that got me thinking in a te technology as an industry as a whole, there is a very low number of women. And um, I would love to know more about how you're leveraging your processes, policies and practices to perhaps attract more women and other underrepresented groups into the sector and make sure that the company feels inclusive towards them. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, um, I'd be happy to. I, I think technology as a sector is, is quite a challenging place in a lot of ways for people who are underrepresented. And women being one of those groups, if we look at the UK landscape, for example, depending on which source you look at, the representation of women in technology roles in, in the UK is somewhere between 26 to 30% of the, of, the, of the technology workforce. Now, not all women in that 26 to 30% uh, group are in actual technical roles. There are also women in that number who are in operations roles, for example, or in HR or finance and work in, in technology companies. So I'm one of those examples where my role at the moment is technically part of the people team in Okaro, so part of HR. Um, but I have also been on the other side in that before transitioning my career into diversity and inclusion, I actually worked as a technology consultant myself for a number of years. So I very much know what it feels like to be in a room and to be the only woman in that room and to be discussing very complex um, technical concepts and to be questioned twice about my ideas or to be asked to re-explain again or for my ideas to be attributed to other people in the room. So unfortunately, these behaviors continue to exist. They're not limited to a specific company. I think there is a lot of work to be done on societal level and industry-wide level to tackle some of those um, stereotypes, to tackle, tackle some of those um, non-inclusive behaviors as well. But ultimately, the numbers are just one aspect of it, right? We, we know the statistics. We know that there is not um, enough representation of women. We know that there is not enough representation of other um, minority groups also. And that shouldn't really be an excuse for any one company in the technology world to say, well, 
I'm only selecting from a pool of people. There are so many women in that pool, so there's only so much I can do. And in that respect, I'm doing what I can, but I'm not going to push any further because, you know, that is the reality that we live in. I, I think um, organizations can and should do a lot more to actually expand that pool of candidates um, and to really invest into the future of the workforce of who is going into, who is getting into the technology industry overall. Um, we know, for example, that there are much fewer girls and young women who complete um, degree subjects at university, which are STEM related, particularly computer science being one example. And of course, if there are not that many people who are graduating with that degree and considering a career in technology, then the pool of people later on when they get to the workforce stage um, is going to be much smaller. So one way of looking at it is how do we invest in the future so that we build that pipeline of women. Um, some examples of, of what Okaru is doing in this space is, is some fantastic work by our emerging talent team who are literally daily working to, to, to expand the pool of talent coming in. So these would be the individuals looking after our graduate and internship programs, apprenticeships also. Um, and, and they work really hard to challenge the boost, to challenge traditional ways of thinking. So they have external partners that they work with, um, but also internally within the processes that they have. Um, the way that they structure, for example, their assessment days is that they try to ensure that there is representation from underrepresented groups, including women, on all of their panels during the interview stages. They try to ensure that there are multiple people reviewing applications so that bias is minimized. They try to ensure that um, they partner with organizations actively looking and recruiting from universities or schools from around the country that are not limited to a certain subject or that are not limited to a certain class of university so that it's not just students graduating from elite schools that get a chance to um, be made a, a job offer. So really pushing boundaries internally within our process and our practices, but also externally in who they partner with. Um, another example is, is work that we're doing with um, an external organization which specializes in reskilling people and training them to be um, software developers. So they organize a bootcamp where employees would go on the bootcamp for a number of weeks. They would train how to code and then they would be made an offer to work at Ocado. This includes both internal employees who are in, in non-technical roles, but also external candidates also who want to join Ocado but don't have that technical background. So funding for such programs and working with external partners that specialize in these types of things is important both to upskill the, the, the talent that's coming fresh out of university or out of school, they don't necessarily need to go to university, um, but also partnering with organizations who work to reskill already experienced people in the workforce. And I think beyond expanding that pipeline, I think looking at some of the uh, processes and, and the, the practices that we follow internally for our experienced hires for Dinocado, there are some pretty simple and straightforward things that not just Tocado, but any organization can do, right? In order to ensure that recruitment is more inclusive. If, for example, um, we ask what our salary expectations are, rather than what, are, what is your current salary, that makes a difference because research shows that women tend to be underpaid 
And by moving from job role to job role, if they state their current salary, the likelihood is that their next job offer is also going to be potentially underpaid overall or relative to other candidates also. So we should be really asking at recruitment stage, what is it that you're expecting to be earning if you were to get this role, um, rather than judging their starting point, which is their current salary. Other simple examples are in the way that job descriptions are being written. Um, ideally, you would want to have a diversity and inclusion statement somewhere at the top to really um, affirm that the organization is looking for diverse talent and that they are um, they're very much welcome to join the organization. In the job description also, you may want to, um, you would want to include, not may, but should really include a statement around reasonable adjustments. It's a legal obligation in the UK and a number of other countries to offer any adjustments to um, candidates with disabilities or, or perhaps those who are neurodivergent who may wish um, to request a different interview format or a different application format or whatever the case might be for their specific needs. But just putting a statement on the job description saying, um, we welcome candidates to apply from any background. If you're requiring a reasonable adjustment, please let us know. That, that in itself sends the right message to a candidate. And if that is missing, well, it might not mean much for someone who is neurotypical, but it might mean a lot for someone who is neurodivergent and who wants to see that commitment from organizations they apply to. So these are just some two or three very small examples to give. But the point being is that we are now at a place, I think, in society where this is now expected of organizations. There needs to be a public commitment. There needs to be presence on their social media profiles talking about um, initiatives relating to diversity and inclusion, uh, being transparent about their data, being transparent about the investment they're making in these types of subjects and the support they're offering to minority groups within their business and also to communities they work in and with. I think this is, this is the bare minimum, right, at this point in time. We, we know that there is public pressure and we know that there is investor pressure, customers, um, suppliers, everyone is involved in these conversations and that's a really wonderful thing to see. At the end of the day, we're all working together towards the same common goal of becoming more inclusive um, and, and to respect each other. So we can learn from each other and from other organizations who are doing well and, and really make it a, a welcoming place for everybody. Thank you so much. Once again, I really appreciate how when I ask you about what you're doing about underrepresented groups, you talk me through all the lenses that you're considering and it's not just a one path approach but really uh, approaching the challenge from different angles making sure that it's all covered from the very beginning to the very end and appreciating that there might not be a very end and that this uh, is indeed uh, a space that's changing so I actually wanted to ask you about that what changes are you seeing or do you foresee are happening when it comes to inclusion and well-being? Are you spotting any trends in terms of what's next? To be honest, I, I wish I could say what's next is that there is no need for roles like mine to exist. I, I think in an ideal world, um, we would be embedding diversity and inclusion and, and the ways we think about employee well-being into every department, in, into every team, into every individual's way of thinking to the point where having a central team wouldn't be necessary anymore. Um, as a society, I think we're walking in the right direction and there is a lot more awareness now, including in the workplace. 
However, I think realistically, it will probably take us a little while to get to that point where it's it's fully embedded in everything that any organization does and in, in the way that we um, function as, as a society. So um, if I have to think of um, maybe one or two key things that I'm, I'm noticing at the moment, I'd probably start with neurodiversity as a big focus area. I know specifically from a technology standpoint that this is an important focus because within technology, we, we all work towards innovative solutions, right? And, and building new tools. To do that, you need diverse ways of thinking. And neurodivergent people bring exactly that, right? They, they bring a different perspective. They may consider a problem and come up with a solution that neurotypical people might not necessarily have considered. And as such, they really should be involved in product design. They really should be involved in product development. Um, and ultimately be a part of the solution making together and be respected and be valued and, and their contributions to be a part of it. So big focus area for innovation, for problem solving, for creativity um, and neurodivergent people really and, and their needs is something that we're, we're trying to focus quite a lot on um, at the moment from a, from a Locato perspective. And just more generally, I'm hearing a lot of that in the technology sector overall. Um, I think the, the other ones that I would probably uh, focus on maybe around ethnicity, um, there has been a lot of conversation in the UK context around ethnicity pay gap reporting, which, which may be coming as a requirement from the government for uh, large organizations, similar to gender pay gap reporting, which has been in place for the last five or six years. Um, there may be um, that same expectation that um, companies report on their ethnicity pay gap now, I'm well aware that there are organizations who are already doing that voluntarily, which is fantastic to see. There are others that unfortunately might be constrained based on the data that they currently have. So they are not yet able to report, but they're working towards enabling that for future. So we, we know that that's likely coming. We know that from a gender pay gap reporting perspective also, um, the European Union just passed a, a directive um, that is going to require pay transparency and there will be new rules put in place for gender pay gap um, in European Union member countries. In the Ocado context, we do have countries in, in the EU where we are present and where we employ people. So that would also be something and is already something that we're looking at internally in preparation for that law coming into practice in the next few years. So I think both from a legislation perspective, things are changing in the right direction. I think from a societal perspective, awareness, expectations, they're rising in a good way. And there is that positive pressure that is then put on businesses as a whole to really um, implement the right initiatives and, and put the right amount of investment in, um, not just in words, but also in practical actions to make their workplaces more inclusive for everybody. Thank you. I really think that you're right and that we have to uh, focus on new, getting new ways of thinking into businesses and especially an organization like Qatar who is leading on innovation. I love that they're considering neurodiverse individuals as being able to lead that and providing the innovation that they're looking for. And I think once again, it shows with all of your work, how ahead of your game you are. Um, so yes, thank you for that. And I guess at this stage, I just have one more thing that I would love to ask you. And that is a question we like to ask all of our listeners. 
which is what is the one thing you have learned along the way you wish you would have known earlier in your career, let's say 10 years ago? I think I would say probably the importance of self-care on, on a personal level. That's something I'm, I'm learning more and more about. I think it definitely helps the fact that I'm now in the well-being and inclusion team. And it's literally my job to be leading by example and to be setting boundaries, um, to be really taking care of listening to and taking care of my own needs uh, physically and mentally. Um, and to really expand my knowledge in that space, I, I practice yoga and, and Pilates. I, I'm quite physically active generally, but also I'm really trying to focus a lot of my energy in, in recent years around mindfulness and, and meditation and similar practices. And what it helps me is to slow down a little bit, to really prioritize how and where I spend my time. Um, to really give my energy fully to the things that I'm working on or, or the things that I'm doing in my personal life and to be fully present in the situation and with the people I'm um, surrounded with. Um, perhaps 10 years ago, I, I was very much on the go all the time. I was traveling a lot more. And of course, this was pre-pandemic, so it's like a different um, setup and context. But I was traveling a lot more. I was living in six different countries in the space of six years. Um, and I was demanding a lot of myself and my body and my mind. And I think now I'm slowly trying to learn to slow down a little bit without compromising quality, but still focusing and, and listening to my own needs. Thank you for being so honest here. I feel like that's probably the advice that a lot of people would have given themselves or that at least they should give themselves. And it's funny how when it comes to self-care and well-being, it tends to hit us when it does. And it's all about foreseeing that, right? Preventing getting to the stage where you need to actively do something about it because then it's almost too late. So I like your approach, just incorporating into your daily life because that's when you can give the best of yourself. And uh, on that note, uh, thank you so, so much for your time today. It has honestly been so wonderful to learn about all the initiatives you're leading and just how groundbreaking they are in their holistic approach. So yeah, on that note, have a great rest of your day. And I really hope we get to speak uh, again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And have a wonderful day also. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Changemaker Conversations. Would you like to talk further about unlocking human potential and creating positive change, either one-to-one or on this very podcast? If so, please visit haltf.com slash inspire. Until next time, goodbye.